Section 8 of The City of Din. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The City of Din by Dan Mackenzie. We proceed now to another section of our subject, that of the noise of railway trains. Ruskin's was a powerful, if somewhat too eloquent, pen, and Ruskin, who had a rich vein of hatred, heartily detested railway trains. But even Ruskin fell short of the possibilities of his theme in this matter of trains. To the onlooker, the shriek and roar of a train is bad enough, but it is transient. A shrill whistle, a roll of thunder, and it is all over till the next time. But to the traveller within the train, the noise it makes brings continued and unmitigated discomfort. Everybody who has ears to hear has heard it, and everybody, I suppose, has analysed it during the weary blankness of a long railway journey. Children, following the rhythmic clank of the wheels as they bump over the rail joinings, make a kind of song of the sound, transmuting the recurrent din in their tuneful natures into some nursery rhyme or folk tune. But in adult life, this kind of involuntary reaction to rhythmic sound is an indication of nerve exhaustion. When, for example, we find ourselves keeping time with hand or foot to the tick of a clock, it is always associated with that curious empty depression that follows a day of worry and harassment. The cause of the rhythmic muscular movement is to be found, probably, in the sidetracking of a recurrent sound to which I alluded in the former section. When we are vigorous, the nerve impulses are obliterated. When we are tired, they are sidetracked. In addition to the clank of the wheel at the end of each length of rail, there is generated by a train in motion a continuous complex noise of a roaring, thundering character, which is the sound produced between the wheels and the rails deepened and amplified by the hollow wooden carriages and reverberated and re-echoed also from cuttings, bridges, and tunnels. The sounds as a whole are relatively inoffensive when the train is moving slowly, but when the pace begins to gather, the noise begins to grow, until at the highest speeds it reaches to a pitch of harsh and clattering uproar that would be alarming were we less accustomed to it. As an occasional addition to this inferno of din, there comes the shriek of the railway whistle. With this ear-splitting, nerve-wracking noise, I have a serious quarrel. The first objection I take to it is that, as a signal, save in thick weather, it is quite unnecessary. In these days of electric signaling, the locomotive whistle is nothing short of an anachronism. This is a bold statement to make, but I believe it can be substantiated. In the second place, granting the necessity of a sound signal, why must it be a whistle of all sounds in the world? In Switzerland, in America, and in other advanced countries, the locomotive advertises its approach by means of a bell. It may not, perhaps, be quite so rich in tone as the bells of Chiswick. It may possibly provoke profane prose rather than sacred song. But, after all, a bell is less damaging both to ear and temper than the steam shriek of our English locomotives. As a matter of fact, there is one British railway, the Caledonian, which, instead of the piercing, high-pitched whistle, employs one of a low tone, like the horn of a steamship before the days of the siren, name of evil omen. 
and I can testify to the fact that, from our point of view, the Caledonian railway whistle is quite innocuous, and at the same time it is undoubtedly as efficient a signal as the shrill whistle. That being so, why do not the other railway companies adopt it? Not because it has never occurred to them, for in point of fact their attention was directed to the advisability of making a change as long ago as 1896. In that year, Dr. Thomas Barr of Glasgow, to whom we owe much of our knowledge concerning the baneful effect of loud noises upon the hearing, read a paper before the autological section of the British Medical Association upon the deleterious action of the ordinary locomotive whistle, with the result that a resolution was adopted by the section, calling the attention of the railway companies to the manner, which resolution was sent to them in due course. But with characteristic British stolidity and contempt for science, the railway companies ignored the suggestion. Everyone, I suppose, has observed and suffered from the curious phenomenon of the rapid rise in pitch of an approaching engine whistle. Beginning at its usual level, it rapidly rises with the swift approach of the engine to a shrill and deafening shriek, and then, as the engine rushes past us, it declines in pitch even more rapidly to its former level again. The same whistle, heard at a distance, would have sounded as an even and uniform note. Why this difference? The cause is physical. As the engine races towards us with whistle blowing, the sound waves emanating from the latter are progressively increased in number in each second of time because the rate of speed of the engine itself adds to the rate at which the sound is produced, thus piling up the waves of sound, a physical process which our brain interprets as a rise in pitch. Then, the climax having been reached, the withdrawal of the engine progressively diminishes the number of sound waves per second, and the pitch falls until it reaches the point at which the waves become uniform again. Naturally, this variation will always occur when a whistle is coming towards us or going from us, but when the engine is far distant, the change will be so slight relative to the distance as to be imperceptible. In addition to the whistle, the locomotive engine is responsible for another ear-shattering noise, that pernicious hissing of steam escaping from the safety valve to it. Usually, for obvious reasons produced at a railway station, it fills the space around it with a monstrous dissonance from which there is no escape. You must grin and bear it. Perhaps of all the deafening sounds of ordinary civilized life, this is the most irritating, the most harmful. That the complex din of engine and train actually damages hearing is shown by the fact, as we shall see by and by, that engine driving is one of the occupations that produce deafness. Those of us, however, who only occasionally or for very brief periods travel by train are not permanently deafened by the row unless our ears are unduly sensitive to sound. What we suffer from is train tiredness, a form of nerve exhaustion. Train tiredness is quite a common and familiar experience and yet at first sight it seems rather difficult to account for. We set out on a long railway journey, fresh and bright. We take our seats and settle down comfortably with books and magazines by our side to while away the time. The train starts, and the day wears on, its monotony being pleasantly broken by meals in the restaurant car. Unless, by the way, we happen to be dining in the Rhone Valley Express, which supplies a combination of clang, clatter, and smash 
unequaled anywhere in my experience. Evening comes, and with it our destination. And then, on alighting from the train, we find that, in spite of a day spent in doing nothing, we are tired out. There are many different varieties of tiredness, each with its own characteristic group of symptoms. First of all, we have muscular tiredness, not by any means an unpleasant sensation to a healthy man, so long as the muscular exertion has not been excessive. But if the day's work has been so hard that exhaustion results, the feeling is not only unpleasant, it is actually painful. The muscular weariness of a hard-worked plowman or laborer is certainly very painful. In any case, however, it gives rise to characteristic bodily sensations easily recognizable as the consequences of muscular exertion. Now, the difference between muscular weariness and mental weariness, everybody who has experienced both can determine. What, however, is less generally appreciated, although to be sure we are all aware of them, is that there are different kinds of mental weariness, kinds clear and distinct from one another, as long, at all events, as they stop short of exhaustion. Into the state known as exhaustion all tend to pass, and in that state the symptoms are pretty much the same, no matter what the cause of the exhaustion may have been. These symptoms surgeons are well acquainted with, under the name of shock. Short of exhaustion, however, as we have already said, the sensations and symptoms vary with the cause. The weariness, for example, that follows a long day of book study, when the mind has been concentrated upon the uphill work of absorbing and memorizing a series of dry and uninteresting minutiae, is quite unmistakable. Its most prominent symptoms are an aching restlessness and craving for movement with an inability to learn any more. The tiredness, again, sequent upon a day spent in the examination hall as a candidate, is also something peculiar and characteristic. Here we have muscular languor, with a vacancy of thought like absent-mindedness, which is followed by deep, dreamless slumber. The tiredness of a witness in a law court after the excitement and strain of a long examination and cross-examination partakes of characters similar to the last, and is worlds different from the tiredness of the barristers who have conducted, and of the judge who has had to listen to the case. The tiredness of a ship's officer, who has been robbed of his sleep by duty in the night watches, is quite different from the weariness that ensues upon a night of spontaneous insomnia, and so on. Some forms of tiredness make us hungry. Some make us bad-tempered. Some make us warm-hearted and generous sympathetic and sentimental. But all, like old age, have a tendency to simplify and to expose the emotional side of our nature, for better or for worse. Now in all these varieties of tiredness, the cause is plain and obvious. They are the result of exertion. Energy has been spent and virtue has gone out of us in a specific direction and for a specific purpose. But when we turn to train tiredness, the explanation does not lie so near to the hand. Here we have been doing nothing, and yet we are tired. In some people, no doubt, the prospect of a railway journey and the fussy excitement entailed thereupon may lead to a prodigal waste of energy, like that of an old lady I once knew who always washed her feet before setting out on a railway journey. There may be an accident, she explained, and my legs may have to be bandaged. 
but even without any of the excitement attendant upon the unusual a long day spent in the train proves to be very tiring what is the reason for it my own opinion is that the cause is to be found in the long bombardment by noise of the auditory nerve centers in the brain and the reasons for this opinion i shall now set forth it is a well-known fact that any excessive stimulation of the nerve centers is tiring a few hours of severe pain like neuralgia or a toothache may reduce even a strong man to a state of weakness pain of course is the name we give to the sensation evoked by an excessive excitation of sensory nerves and indeed the shock that follows an accident such as a broken leg for example is according to Kreil, a well-known american surgeon due to this very sensory excess that we are talking about shock by the way may come on apart from pain but to discuss that fact would lead us too far aside from our subject joy moreover can kill and sorrow is often fatal now in railway traveling a rolling stream of loud noise is incessantly battering naked unprotected nerve endings a hyper excitation that like pain or anxiety keeps the nerve centers in the brain on the stretch for hours together surely this of itself is sufficient to induce tiredness it is an interesting and perhaps convincing fact that if the ears are stopped with some material more or less impenetrable by the louder sounds then train tiredness is surprisingly reduced the experiment is worth trying if only for the evidence it affords of the dependence of cerebral activity upon external stimuli the outside world it is that keeps us alive plugging the ears against sound especially on a train journey induces first of all a surprising feeling of restfulness which we presently recognize to be due to a withdrawal of the strain of the presence of which we had nevertheless been unaware previous to its disappearance the restfulness after a time passes into a pleasant drowsiness a sort of half dream state in which we lose count of time and wander aimlessly along bypaths of thought a species of reverie due obviously to the transformation of the violent noise into a low droning sound which may deepen into real slumber if the eyes are closed it is easily broken by mental effort but the dolce far niente is much too pleasant to be thus needlessly disturbed as time passes however it fades away spontaneously and it seldom returns upon subsequent journeys when plugs are used although of course the noise is always excluded on night journeys however the diminution of the disturbing noises always conduces to sleep more refreshing than the usual rackety slumber of the night mail with the subjective symptoms of train tiredness everyone is familiar everyone that is to say who is not deaf the deaf as we might expect being less liable to it the mentality is heavy and sluggish the appetite is depressed and some people suffer from headache and general muscular aching this last feeling may be due to the prolonged constraint of the body a constraint with which is coupled an incessant muscular activity necessitated by the constant changing of bodily balance as the carriage swings to and fro in its progress but the constraint and muscular activity are not in themselves the main cause of train tiredness however is evident from the fact that there is as a rule much less weariness after a long motor ride than after a train journey 
Objectively, the train-tired traveler manifests signs of what is known as vasomotor exhaustion, the cutaneous capillaries being empty, the face pale, the extremities chilly, and the pulse at the wrist slow and hard. Footnote. Train sickness, like the commoner sea sickness, is probably due to hyperstimulation of the vestibular centers in the brain. It has nothing to do with auditory hyperstimulation, as far as we know. End footnote. In spite of the aching, there is a little muscular asthenia, unless the tiredness is extreme, for it is relieved by a walk in the open air. Otherwise, there is no cure like a hot bath and a good dinner. While it is probable that the semi-voluntary muscular movement called forth by changes in bodily position has little or nothing to do with the production of train tiredness, at the same time, I am inclined to think that in other respects, the muscular system does play an important part in its causation. In describing the effect of plugging the ears, I referred to the feeling of relieved strain which follows that act, and in order to complete our explanation of train tiredness, it will be necessary for us to inquire into the nature of this strain. There is an intimate association between the sense of hearing and the muscular organization. We have already mentioned the sidetracking of unpleasant or persistent sounds. Now, the sidetrack followed is always one that leads to the muscles. Further, rhythmic sounds lead naturally to rhythmic movement, as in dancing and marching to music. The ease with which rhythmic sound bears us on its pinions is due to the fact that it to some extent relieves volition of the necessity of repeated effort by substituting for it a regular recurrent auditory stimulus, to the rhythm of which the physiological timing of nerve and muscle movement seems naturally to adapt itself. Now, besides the obvious muscular contraction that produces movement, there is another kind of muscular tonus, a form of muscular tension which is always present more or less, even when the muscles are at rest and the body and limbs are still. Muscular tonus varies in degree in different people, and in that same person it varies in degree from hour to hour. Certain mental states elevate it, others depress it. Higher in nervous people and lower in stolid people, it is always greater during attention and less during listlessness. It is markedly heightened by loud musical sound, and it is still more heightened by loud noise. See how nervous people jump at a sudden bang, and note also how after the climax of a fortissimo passage by the orchestra, there follows a relaxation of our muscles, which we did not till then realize had been contracted. The point I wish to make is now clear. The noise of a railway train increases muscular tension and sustains it at the elevated level, thus producing the strain which leads to train tiredness, and it is the relief of this strain that is felt when the earplugs are inserted. I have dwelt upon the subject of train tiredness for a special purpose, a purpose connected with my main argument. If noise is thus capable of producing nerve exhaustion, we have reason, clear and definite, why on medical and common sense grounds we should labor to bring about a reduction of the noises in our city of Din. Use and want can do much. Eels, they say, get used to skinning. 
Hence, it comes about that when the city man goes into town, he never notices the noise, save when it is so loud as to render him deaf to ordinary conversation, as when one of those brewers' steam engines and dray crashes along the streets. But we have not always been thus heedless of the din. The most striking impression a child receives during a trip to town is that of a noise which deafens him, stupefies him, and reduces him to silence and a frightened sense of his own exceeding smallness. Many years ago, I remember meeting in a large railway terminus a young lady who had just arrived in one of our cities from the Outer Hebrides. Until that day, she had never seen a railway train. The poor girl was flushed and bewildered, and when I asked her what it was that struck her most, she replied with a frown, The noise. Only once did I ever hear a train produce a pleasant sound, and so rare a fact is worthy of mention. I was traveling in Switzerland, and had arrived worn, dirty, and disheveled at Interlaken. An open train took us through a maze of trees, the branches of which almost brushed our faces as we passed along. At that moment the noises of the train, broken up, I suppose, into a million little echoes by the myriads of leaves, fell upon the ear with a rushing sound like the ripple of a shallow river over its pebbles. It is now many years since I heard that sound, and to this day, yet, it lingers gratefully in my memory. End of section 8